Well, let's take our Bibles together and turn to the book of Revelation. We're looking at chapter 7 this morning. Revelation chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to use the church Bible. It's on 1031. That's where you'll find it. 1031. If you don't own a Bible, please, please, I urge you, take that. Make that your own Bible. You can take it. All right? You need the Bible. All right, Revelation chapter 7. Let's give our attention to God's Word being read. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm earth and sea or trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of, tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of God. We thank him for it. Would you bow with me as we ask for the Lord's help in this time? Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken. You have given us your word. We have books. It's easy to access for us. But we know our attention is so often drawn away and Lord, what we do also know is that this word of yours is food for our souls. It's the means by which we're made. 
wise to very, the very salvation that is available in Jesus Christ. It is the, the means by which we are sanctified. We are made like Christ in character. It's how we know your will. And so, Father, would you accomplish in us what we certainly cannot do for ourselves by your word? And Lord, we know that you need to speak among, um, above the voice of a mere man. We know that we need to hear from you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me not get in the way and that you would give all of us a, a, a spirit, a, an attitude before you that we are expecting to be fed by you. So help each of us to look past the man and seek to hear from you. We know, Father, you do that by your Spirit. May it be so that Christ himself may be glorified. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, don't you love this time of year? Uh, there's that warning you get on your phones and then the sirens go off. Now the, these deadly uh, storms in Tornado Alley, as I guess we're part in the northern part of that, They've hit other communities, but we haven't had one yet. Uh, I pray that we don't. But of course, we get why there's sirens. We get why we're supposed to go down to our basements. There, there's a reason we, even though we like to, or I like to, there's a reason we shouldn't stand outside staring at the green sky, as fascinating as it is. Because if the storm does come in, if you are standing outside and you're pummeled by baseball-sized hail, you likely won't survive, right? If, if a funnel cloud throws debris at you, you will be impaled, likely, by something. So we go in our houses to avoid the danger. And we go downstairs because your windows might be blown out, right? Ah, wonderful springtime in the Midwest, right? But you know what this is like, and we've, if you've lived here long enough, long enough, you you simply cannot stand up to a storm like that. You have to take cover. Now, from the previous section we dealt with um, before, uh, before taking a break for Resurrection Sunday, uh, we, we saw that, and this is at the end of chapter, chapter 6, we saw that God would unleash upon the earth his wrath. It would be a judgment against his enemies, all those who have rejected the grace of God in Christ. And that's really the, the opening of the sixth seal. And I'll remind you what's there. There's this great earthquake. The sun is darkened. The moon turning blood red. Stars falling from the sky. The sky vanishing, being rolled up like a scroll. Mountains and islands being displaced. It's a cataclysmic event, right? And now these cosmological signs, whether literal or Figured if they indicate something that's just some massive upheaval and danger for all who would dwell on the earth. This relentless barrage of physical punishments mediated in effect at God's command by creation itself turning on mankind for having introduced sin into creation and rejecting the very remedy for sin in the vicarious death of Christ himself. Now creation turns on the man at the command of God. To unleash the holy fury of God. And everyone, we're told, from the greatest in power, from the greatest in wealth, to the lowly slave, all will be in terror, knowing for certain that this is God's 
just wrath. And so, so great will their horror be that they will prefer death by mountains and rocks falling upon them rather than to face the wrath of the Lamb. Now, here we are at chapter 7. How do we make sense of chapter 7? And I got to say, I agonized over this all week. I asked for prayer from particular people just to get me through. And so I'll say this, to this point in our journey through Revelation, I've kind of avoided taking a, a sort of public position on matters of eschatological position, end times stuff. I've kind of avoided that. Uh, some of you are familiar with my own perspective, but I guess today I'm going to have to, to some degree, reveal my cards, as it were. Uh, a ministry colleague once stated it this way. I'm going to have to, new Star Wars fan will get this, but I'm going to have to land the Millennium Falcon. I'm going to have to do that. Yeah, you didn't get that, did you? The Millennium, not Millennial, never mind. You know, it seemed funny in the pastor circles. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I know some of you don't particularly care whether we as a church hold to a pre-millennial view, or that's either historical or dispensationalist, or a post-millennial view, or an amillennial view. Some of you don't even know what those terms mean, and that's okay. You don't have to know them to be a Christian. I will say, as a church, our, our official position on these matters is that we don't have one, okay? So I know there are differing views on this, but there's no way I can preach through this without revealing kind of where I'm standing. And I trust that the Lord will, well, you'll be gracious and the Lord will give us some sense of, of application that crosses the lines of, of different interpretations. So stay with me on this. Um, this is not, matters of eschatology, I will say just by, again, I'm introduction here. Uh, matters of eschatology are not, core doctrines, so it's not at the same level as believing in the deity of Jesus Christ, okay? So don't hold it there, all right? It's, it's third level. Secondary levels, those are things that churches would divide over, but we wouldn't call the Presbyterians heretics for baptizing their babies. We just think they're wrong, okay? We baptize believers, so that's a second level one. We divide over that, but the third level stuff, it's like, you know, the Bible doesn't permit one to drink wine in moderation, Yes, no, some people say. Those are things that we can agree to disagree on. But matters of, of eschatology are kind of in that camp. Where you land, and, and your favorite Bible teachers, if you have them uh, you know, on the radio and podcasts and such, you'll see that they disagree as well on these matters. So I'm saying this up front because I'm, I'm going to reveal where I'm coming from. And, and uh, if, if you want to check our distinctives page on the website, you will see the things that are really important to us and, uh, and you'll see by what's absent what is not important to us. So, you're going to find out where I land on some matters of eschatology, that is end time stuff. And like I said, if you find yourself disagreeing where I land, I, I'm asking for charity here. Now, back to our text and, the, and what precedes it. Describing the great... Wrath, at the end of chapter 6, verse 17, John asks this question, and so my opening illustration, who can stand? Who can stand? Is there anyone that will endure the full fury of the wrath of God that he pours out on the earth, the, the cataclysmic event as a judgment? And chapter 7 answers that question. And it explains to us, and here's my very simple outline this morning. Chapter 7 explains to us how and 
who and why? Who will endure? How will they endure? Who are those in particular? And, and why would they? For what purpose? And, and, and I think beyond why would they endure? What purpose are we being shown this? That's the why. So, so you know where I'm coming from. I just want to share some basic hermeneutical assumptions, presuppositions. Okay, hermeneutical is how you interpret scripture. And I, I think I'm in a good tradition here. Uh, you know, the genre of this book, the, the, the style of writing is, it's called apocalyptic. And so it's, it's, it's loaded with imagery, right? We've already seen that. And what John has written down is this content of a vision given to him by the Lord Jesus. And like I say, it's a, it's a vision. And given that it is a vision, it's full of symbolism, which, to, which is to say that what John sees and hears may not be things in reality. They're in reality in his vision, but that you could point to somewhere in creation where that thing exists. And I'll, I'll just give you an example. Chapter 5, the Son of God is depicted in his vision, okay, as a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So this is what he sees. Now, it's hard to make sense of, of what John actually sees, but that's what he describes. The Son of God, he sees them as a lamb as though having been slain. But not only that, he has seven horns and seven eyes. Now, I think we can say for certain that, that Jesus, in actuality, does not have seven horns and seven eyes. In fact, the disciples saw him post-resurrection. He still has that body. He has the body of a glorified man. His glorified body has the marks of suffering. But John has given this picture of him to teach him something, to teach us something. And so, so there's imagery. And we can make sense of some of the imagery that we see in Revelation by looking at the Old Testament. And I'll, and I'll refer there a little bit. Here's another assumption. I'm going to assume that the way the apostles interpreted the fulfillment of the Old Testament, I'm going to assume that that's authoritative for how we think about the people of God as a whole. What did the apostles say about the people of God? How did God fulfill his promises? And we'll see an example in a little bit. So with all of that out of the way, let's look at our questions. How is it possible first of all, to endure the great day of God's wrath. How is that possible? Now, if you've ever had a, uh, uh, a document notarized, you know how this works, right? We have a few notaries among us. Uh, the notary checks uh, a government-issued identification, right? And, and what that notary does is that, that she watches as you affix your own signature. Then she will stamp the document with a seal, effectively declaring the authenticity of that signature, right? So what that seal does, it expresses both an authority, but as well as a protection for the one who is going to trust the authenticity of the document. So there's, there's authority, there's protection. And the authority says, yes, that person owns that signature. This matches. So it's trusting the authority uh, an authenticity of the, the signatory. Now, from the end of chapter 6, uh, the opening of the sixth seal, we learn that, again, there, there's this disaster that would come upon the earth. And the fury of the just wrath of the Lamb will be unleashed through this, this cataclysm of natural disasters. 
So with doom coming upon the earth, how will God's people be protected? And we're told, a seal, a seal. Now John is shown how, and here's what he sees. First of all, he sees four angels. These are messengers of God. And, and what they're doing in his vision is they're, they're at the four corners of the earth. You could imagine north, south, east, west. And they're, they're restraining the destructive winds. And it's prevented from, from blowing on the earth. It's prevented from blowing over the sea or against any tree. So we can get the image. The tornado is held back. The hurricane is kept at bay. And what, an, what happens then is that there's another angel that, that ascends from the rising sun. What is that? Now, I, I think this is possibly an allusion to God's righteousness and his restorative grace, that, that, that rising sun. And I'll give you an example from the prophets. And, and again, we find meaning in some of these images from the Old Testament. Here, here it says in, in Malachi 4.2, But for you who fear my name, the sun, that's S-U-N, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So this is the restorative grace of God. And the, this angel then, the one who says, hold back, this angel has the seal of the living God. And he tells the angels who have the destructive power but are restraining the winds, right? Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Now it's going to happen until, and so he's marking time, right? Until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads, the servants of God, until we have sealed them. So mark somehow on the forehead. Now here, another, another uh, Old Testament illusion. So, so what's the significance of the seal on their foreheads? So we look back at the prophets and we see an example of this in Ezekiel. The Lord there was going to unleash judgment on the city of Jerusalem for their idolatry. And so he appoints that that the executioners should come out and, and kill. But he called for a man clothed in linen to protect the righteous. And here's what it says in Ezekiel 9.4. And the Lord said to him, this one clothed in linen, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men, and here's how they're described, who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. All of those who are saying, this idolatry is offensive to the Lord and it's offensive to me. And they groan for the, for the unrighteousness that has come into the city. And the Lord says, mark them on their foreheads, protect them. They are the righteous. As we look back at our text, the, the world must be judged for its wickedness. The world because God is a righteous judge. The world must be judged for its idolatry, for ultimately for spurning Christ. But God does make a distinction. His seal is the protection. But it's also his mark of ownership. God's seal is his protection, but it's also the mark of his ownership. Those who are sealed belong to the Lord. Now, we're going to see later in, in the book of Revelation here in chapter 9, verse 4, with the fifth trumpet, the ones with the seal of God on their foreheads, they are there protected from the scorpion locusts. We'll get into unpacking that later, of course. But here in chapter 7, verse 3, they belong to the Lord and they're protected because they are also his servants. They're his servants. And that's an important thing. 
The servants of the Lord are protected, and they are the ones that are sealed. And so we have to think of this in contrast to those who serve the beast, and we'll see that later. Those who serve the beast in his image. This is Revelation 13. You see, the ones who serve the beast in him, his image, they receive a mark on their foreheads of belonging to the beast. They're basically opposed to God. They're enemies of God. The beast sets himself up, or, or this thing, whatever the beast is, whether it's institution or individual, sets itself up against God and opposes everything that God commands. And those who are marked by the beast then serve it or him. So wrath is coming, but those who are sealed, again, are protected from that wrath. So what, what is the seal? Now, it's figuratively or, or given in the vision as some kind of mark on the forehead. What is it that will protect the servants of the Lord on the day of God's wrath? What is it that sets apart the true people of God from the wicked? And the answer is this. It is the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. I think that's what's in view here. Sealed on the forehead, but it speaks of a, a, a greater reality. It's the Holy Spirit. And I take this from Scripture. So what is the evidence? What is the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? What is the evidence that you have been sealed? And here it says in Ephesians 1.13. And this is where, brothers and sisters, friends, this is where we do some self-evaluation. The question is, are you sealed? Here is how we know. Ephesians 1.13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Let me read that again. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The gospel of your salvation. Now, gospel is a shorthand word. But that's the, the good news about Jesus. Who he is, the divine son of God, who lived on this earth, walked in sinless perfection, was crucified, God regarded his death on the cross as full payment for the sin of all who would look to him in faith and say, I believe that he's the son of God. I believe that he died in my place. That is the gospel of your salvation. And if you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So if you truly believe, you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is all owing to the Holy Spirit. He made you spiritually alive. He dwells in you. And He is God's mark of ownership of you. Now think about this. As it regards the wrath of God. If the Spirit of God dwells in you forever, you cannot be condemned. Or stated another way, if you are in Christ... Forever, you cannot be condemned. Now, why is that the case? Because if you're in Christ, the only way that you could be condemned is for Christ to be condemned again along with you because you're in Christ. And the only way for you to be condemned, and this is impossible, if the Holy Spirit is within you, 
is that you'd be condemned along with the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And that's absurd. No, you have the mark. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you have the mark of the Holy Spirit. You are protected. And this is all God's doing. This is his grace to us. That you even believe that, that he opened your eyes. You know people who've heard the very same message that you have heard. What is the difference? Were you more clever? Were you more just open-minded to the gospel? No. It's all of God's grace. As it says in 2 Corinthians, it is God who establishes us in Christ and who has put who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So, again, by contrast, the wicked, the idolater, the ones who set themselves up against God and the Lamb must be judged, and that day is coming. But because of the Holy Spirit, because of God's seal upon all who trust Christ, they will be spared. And I hope you see this as good news. This is our eternal hope. So let me ask you, do you have this confidence today? I probably don't often get asked the question, have you been sealed with the Holy Spirit? Which means, have you trusted in Christ? Because unless you have, you will not escape the wrath of God. But the good news, 1 Thessalonians 9, uh, 5, 9 and 10, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that where, whether we are awake or asleep, meaning in the grave, we might live with him. That is the promise. So that's the how. How will they stand? The Holy Spirit is the seal. Well, let's get to the who. The who. Now you might be thinking, well, why do we even need this point? I know who the who is. I'm among the who. I hope you're among the who. Verses 4 to 8 uh, explain the who are sealed. But I think the answer to that question is more far-reaching than that. What John is being shown here in this, in this is how... God is fulfilling his promises for his kingdom, his people, from the very beginning of time. Now, I'll remind you in the story of the world, in the story of the world according to the Bible, in the beginning, Adam and Eve were created and they, they lived sinlessly in, in God's beautiful garden in Eden. But they sinned. They rebelled against God. They took of the fruit. And at that point, God began a plan to rescue man from his own rebellion promising a seed to the woman who would eventually crush the head of that very serpent that tempted them, right? And along comes Abraham, who has made a promise. You'll be a great nation, and through your offspring, all of the nations will be blessed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons. And here's where we get to this imagery that we now see in verses 4 through 8, explaining who are sealed. Back to the text. Who are the ones that are sealed? Well, we see that there's a list, 12,000 each from the 12 tribes 
of Israel. So 12,000 times 12,000, 144,000 in total. Now, if you look ahead in your Bibles, you'll find that these are the same ones in chapter 14. These are the ones who are with the Lamb on Mount Zion. They have been redeemed from the earth. That's how they're described there. But where does this, where does this idea come from? And now we could look back at our history and say, oh, yeah, the 12, 12 sons of Jacob. This, this kind of a, it, it looks like a census, and it, it seems reminiscent of that census that, was, that, that Moses was commanded to take of, of Israel's warriors, Numbers 1 and 2. You'll see the lists there. Now, if you look back at that list in, in Numbers, there are differences, okay? This, this list isn't the same. The first one in the list in Numbers is, is not Judah, like his first is listed here, right? Included in this list in Revelation 7 is Levi. But Levi served at the temple, and they weren't supposed to be fighting people. And also notable, notably absent in this list in Revelation 7 is Dan. He's absent. And Joseph is listed instead of Ephraim. That's an interesting thing. Now, I take it. I, this is where I land on this. I take it that this whole thing is symbolic. Judah here is preeminent. And why is Judah preeminent? Because he's the one through whom the Messiah would be revealed. So Jesus was from the line of Judah, King David, and we, we come back. And Judah was promised, the scepter will not depart from you. So there would be a, a, a kind of a royal, royal, uh, royal tribe among the Israelites. And so why are Dan and Ephraim absent in this list? And, and again, we have to look back in the Old Testament. We find, okay, maybe it has to do with an illusion. It's an illusion here, perhaps, during the time of King Jeroboam and after the kingdoms were, uh, the northern kingdom split from, the, from Judah. Dan and Ephraim, and specifically Bethel, became places where pagan cult worship happened. They worshipped a calf. And so perhaps it's like, this is not part of the people of God. And so maybe they've been excluded for that reason. Again, it's symbolic. Does it mean that there isn't a soul from the tribe of Dan who is faithful to the Lord? No. Does it mean there wasn't a soul from the tribe of Ephraim that wasn't faithful to the Lord? No. It's symbolic. Twelve is a, a number that's very much symbolic. right? It's symbolic of of governmental completion. And so when you get 12 times 12 times 1,000, you get the totality of governmental, uh, God's government plan. And looking back at numbers, that census list there, they were prepared to fight. They were prepared to fight for the Israelites. Here, this 144,000 are likewise, I think, to fight but not with weapons. In fact, to fight in exactly the same way that their Lord, their King, Jesus, fought through self-sacrifice as martyrs. In dying, Jesus was victorious over sin. And in dying, we find life in him. So John heard the number that were sealed. But note in chat, uh, verse 9, if you're looking at your Bibles, after this, after this, I looked. 
Verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, I know this is very teachy this morning. Hang with me here. Before we get to the relationship between the 144,000 and this great multitude, I want you to note something here. Okay, just look at your Bibles and you see this. This heard, saw motif. I heard and I saw. This is important in John's vision. Let me give you a previous example. Previous example of I heard. Back to this, this, this what, what John saw in um, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Okay? And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So this is what he hears. He's being told this. Okay? Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Okay, what, what's all that? That's, that's the Old Testament prophetic words about the coming Messiah. This is what he hears. And in the mind of, a, of an Israelite before Christ showed up, like conquering king, he's going to take David's throne and he'll be there forever. He'll kick out these, these nasty Romans if we're thinking first century, right? But then what does he see? Verse 6, and in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Well, how does this comport with this image of Messiah and conquering king? The lamb now slain. It's a different picture, a more full picture of who the Messiah is. Seven horns, that's his power. Seven eyes, all seeing, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the world. So the Holy Spirit in concert with the, with the very Son of God, accomplishing the work of God, a lamb as though slain. So, back to our chapter, verse in chapter 7. John hears what is written. He hears the ancient promise, right? All of these tribes, these people. And it's counted out. 12,000 from each tribe. But I take it, I take it that what he sees, what he, what he hears, he's told. Then he sees the great multitude. He sees the great multitude. You see, what's happening here, he gets a fuller picture of who are the people of God. Now, this is not a new idea to John. That the, the people of God encompass a people from every tongue and tribe and nation on the earth. Jesus cryptically spoke about this. He said this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now here's where we get into where, where I'm landing on this, and why is this so important. We'll get there. Just a, just a couple of examples, and then we'll move on. When the apostles were, were concerned about the conversion of the Gentiles as a result of the apostolic ministry of Paul and Barnabas, preaching the gospel, well, they assembled in Jerusalem a council. We've we got to talk about this. You mean the Gentiles? Like they're hearing and they're it's like, what does that mean? He's in their minds that this is a kind of a Jewish thing. This is an Israelite thing. This is Israel's Messiah. But wait a minute, why are these Gentiles believing? Well, they come back and report, and they rejoice. The, the, the Jerusalem council, they're rejoicing. And what do they say? And this is their interpretation. What they do is they quote Amos 9.11. That's a prophecy 
about the restoration of Israel. And so they're basically saying, what's happened here among these Gentiles, that's Amos 9.11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. See, the apostles didn't see a distinction between Jew and Gentile. If you trusted in Christ, you were one. Paul makes this case in Romans. For no one who is, is, is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. And he, this is shocking. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. And then he says later in Romans 9, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. It's shocking. One more, and then I'll move on. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, this is lengthy. For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made us both, and I'm adding, Jew and Gentile, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he, that is Christ, might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. For through him, that is Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to one Father. So then you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There it is. The apostles didn't see a Jew-Gentile distinction. And I know in some people's eschatological system, there's a special plan for the Jews. So I, what I'm saying is I don't land there because of what the scriptures are saying, at least how I see it. What's the point of all of this? This is the new covenant people of God. And, and I hope and pray that you're among the new covenant people of God this morning. There is no advantage before God for the Jew today. They need Jesus just as much as you do. Now, I understand in, in our time and in history, the Jews have been absolutely abused. Anybody who identifies as Jewish, they have suffered great persecution. And I'm not explaining any of that from the scriptures. It's just a reality. And any sort of hateful statements uh, minimizing them or, or marginalizing them or thinking that they're somehow less than, that's just sin. It's just sin. But they need Jesus. Their path to God, their path to eternal life is through the same path that we have. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life for both the Jew and the Gentile. And when we come to Christ in faith, the, the, the differences are gone. And inasmuch as a Jew felt like he was part of the people of God or an Israelite, one of the 12 tribes, greater, in a greater sense, you and I, who are not raised Jewish, who had no sense of that culture in our background, you and I are every bit as part of the covenant people of God because that's done in Christ. And what are these people? What do they look, what, what do we know about them? Verse 9, we see that they're, they're clothed in white robes. Why? Well, they're Verse 14 tells us they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Well, if you've ever tried to wash anything in blood, again, it's imagery, right? The cleansing, forgiving blood of Jesus to die in their place. They are washed in that. Their sins have been taken away. They have forgiveness. And what they're doing now is they're holding these palm branches. 
And another Old Testament allusion here. Back to the, if you want to look at your Bibles, back to the Feast of Tabernacles in Leviticus 23, memorializing the Exodus. So in a greater sense, I mean, Israelites, they, they were freed from torment. They were freed from enslavement to Pharaoh, and they celebrated that with palm branches. These whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, holding palm branches in John's vision, how much more have they been freed from enslavement to sin and its eternal consequence, death. And once again here, a people from every tribe and nation showing us participating in this, this Old Testament festival, if you will. And all of these together, this multitude, they cry out and worship to the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels, they can't help themselves. They fall in their faces and they agree with their amen. Now, at this point in the vision, an elder, one of the elders there, he asks for John's sake who these people are. Who are these people? Sir, you know is the answer. And he's told, they're the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, I take it that this great tribulation is not some unique period in time, but the very situation that we see back at the beginning of Revelation, right? All of those seven churches were exhorted. They, would, they were exhorted to, to endure, to, to hold fast, to conquer, because they were going to endure tribulation, some even unto death. Revelation 3, 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So, looking for some application here. We see this great multitude that no one can number. That's what it's going to be like on that day. Brothers and sisters, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're part of that company. So, whatever your background, whatever your heritage, all of that is secondary. That's why Jesus commanded the church to make disciples of all nations. It is his will that a people from every tongue and language and tribe will be around that throne in that day. And God planned that from the beginning. And while it was a mystery and, and the Israelites didn't fully understand how it would work, John is given the full picture from the beginning of creation to the way it's going to look at the end, the full scope of history. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit, the one sealing spirit on us. So why all this? Why all this? What's the purpose of what John is being shown? Why this, why this great multitude? Why the 144,000? And I think I've already said this, but what, what, what John sees and what we're supposed to see is this sweep of history and the fulfillment of God's promises to set apart a people to himself. And I'll remind you again, and I know I keep touching on this, but this is so vitally important. When Adam sinned in the garden, he turned from serving the Lord to serving his own appetites. It looked good to him, so he took it. The fruit, I, this might make me like God. He turned from serving the Lord to serving his own appetites. And then God set apart Abraham and then promised to make him a great nation, ultimately in order to usher in the way of salvation for all people. And when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, 
what did the Lord command Pharaoh? You won't remember this, but, but the Lord commanded Pharaoh this, thus, because they were enslaved there, right? Thus says the Lord, this is to Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go that they may serve me. That's the why. God calls the people to himself that we may serve him. That's been that way since the beginning. That was Adam's responsibility in the garden. That was the Israelites' responsibility as they left Egypt. That is our responsibility. God calls us to himself that we may serve him. And that's what's being explained in John's vision here. Therefore, verse 15 of our text, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Brothers and sisters, that, that, that forever picture that should inform our present behavior. If you're a child of God, you've been set apart to serve him. And what does that look like? It's not a, a job on a list like, well, I'll do ushering, I'm serving the Lord. It, it's, it's not that way. It's first and foremost your heart that says, God has been gracious to me. What else would I do but what it says in Romans 12? One and two. Therefore, considering the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. That's what we're to do. So let me exhort you live now. Live now in light of eternity, in light of your eternal purpose. Hear what Peter says in his first letter, using, again, speaking to Christians, but using this Old Testament imagery. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if you have received mercy, you exist. I exist. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. That's why we gather here, brothers and sisters. That's why we're here today. We're here to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. He called us out of darkness by sending his son to bear the full weight and responsibility of our sin before God the Father paid for that. That is excellent. That grace is indescribable. It, it's, it's a beauty that nothing in all creation can compare to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and me. And our service to the Lord, oh, that's not burdensome. You think of serving God like, oh, this is going to be hard. No, no, this is how it works. When God's people serve him, they get to enjoy him. And the picture that we have in eternity is, is serving him, but what does God give us in exchange? This glorious picture, verse 15, the second part, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them. This is the multitude. Will shelter them with his presence. And here it is, this beautiful picture of what we'll experience. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them. Never hungering, never thirsting. And that's just, that's just a, a metaphor for, for other kinds of things, right? You'll never need 
anything. You will never feel lack. You will never feel short. You will never feel like you've just, like something's not quite enough. Forever and for eternity, you will have everything you need because you are in the sheltering presence of God. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, our shepherd, and he will guide us to springs of living water and, and this beautiful picture. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No sorrow, no pain, no suffering. Anything that would grieve you, it's gone forever. So if you belong to the Lord, let me wrap this up. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's what it says in Colossians 3.3. And that's forever. And because that's true, you've been sealed the Holy Spirit. That marks you for eternity. There is no fearing the wrath of God. There is only eternal joy in the tender care of our Father. And there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Those who are great or lowly in the eyes of the world, no special status before God. We are all one in Christ. And this promise, this hope is for all who believe in him. And let me ask you one more time. When the day of the wrath of the Lord comes, will you stand? Think about that. Let's pray. God, I, I'm confident that many, many in this room will stand. And we thank you, Father, for the indescribable gift of your grace that you from the very beginning of time, determined to call a people unto yourself that would serve you continually, day and night, forever. Father, inasmuch as you have opened our eyes to see your Son, our Savior, Jesus, we have that certainty, we have that security and the mark of your Spirit on us. We thank you for that, Father. These are all, all indescribable gifts of your goodness to us. Father, you are a just God and you will unleash your wrath on the unrighteous, those who have rejected your offer of salvation. Father, thank you for revealing that to us and that we can be certain that we have not been destined for wrath, but life forever with you. Keep us faithful to that day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.